Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The United States got a new president this week in an inauguration unlike any other with 25,000 National Guard troops called in for security and hardly anyone in the audience kept away because of COVID. But it was more than just a change in administration. It was a change in philosophy and tone and approach. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Hi, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Do solemnly swear. I, Lyndon Baines Johnson, do solemnly swear. I, George Walker Bush, do solemnly swear. That I will execute the office of President to the United States faithfully. That I will execute the off- faithfully the pres- office of President of the, the United States. The office of President of the United States faithfully. So help me God. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. The office of President of the United States. That was a glimpse of inauguration's past. This inauguration was like no other, without the hundreds of thousands of people on the mall because of COVID-19, but with 25,000 National Guardsmen occupying the Capitol to prevent a repeat of the riots from two weeks before. It did share with earlier inaugurations the attention of the entire world. And Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations, thinks President Biden used it to start to rebuild alliances that had suffered under his predecessor. At the back of every ally's head is the concern over whether this divided country can be there for them, and also what comes in four years. And to put it bluntly, How are they to understand where America is in the arc of its history? Were the last four years the aberration, and this is now the restoration of the normal? Or will it turn out that the last four years were a harbinger? We'll have four years of Joe Biden, but then then we're going to return to some version of Trumpism 
with or without the man? And that's the question mark that Mr. Trump planted uh, around the world. Rich, I wonder if there's one place in which we shouldn't really expect too much of a deviation, because we did hear in the confirmation testimony uh, from uh, uh, Tony Blinken, and he seemed to indicate maybe they would be just as tough on China as President Trump had been. And by the way, Janet Yellen, the nominee for Treasury, also had some harsh things to say about China. Oh, I think there'll be more consistency than, than difference there, David. You're exactly right. I think it reflects a shift in American thinking about China. It's a bipartisan shift much more critical, much more skeptical. But this is a very different China. This is Xi Jinping's China. It's more repressive at home. Economically, it's not evolved in ways that people expected or hoped for. It's stronger militarily. It's much more assertive uh, diplomatically. So I think you're going to get, you're going to get uh, much more pushback from the United States. Richard, this is Rick Davis in Washington. And I wanted to get back to sort of the global point of view, because you're right. I mean, uh, I've spent a lot of time traveling around the world and there's a lot of questions with heads of state over uh, sort of what is the arc of the U.S. And, and obviously, I think Biden leaned into that. Uh, President Biden leaned into that by talking about reengagement and 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 by the power of our example, I think, was his quote. And and what would those examples be in the near term? I mean, what would you like to see this administration do, uh, either through his cabinet members or the president or the vice president, to actually try to get back in the game and reestablish that kind of global trust? Well, the biggest thing would be competence. And progress versus COVID-19 might be the single most important national security statement the United States uh, could make. I think rebooting, to some extent, the American economy, American economic growth would be welcome. A demonstration that our politics, our institutions can hold. You will have the United States re-enter various international arrangements. We left the Paris Climate uh, Accords, the World Health Organization, and there will be a big emphasis on simply talking to allies, to, to consultations, and that suggests multilateralism, which, which basically puts an end to two things. It puts an end to America acting on its own in the world, which was something that Mr. Trump stood for, and it also puts an end to the 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 bias towards isolationism. So this will be an administration that will lean into uh, diplomacy and foreign policy, and it will lean into a collective approach. And I think for the most part, that'll be welcome. So Richard, to borrow a hackneyed expression from an old uh, car commercial, as I recall, this ain't your father's uh, world anymore. I mean, what gave rise to the uh, post-World War II structures doesn't obtain anymore. So it's not just a matter of going backward, right? It has to go forward. Is there a vision? Does the Biden camp have a vision of how we can rebuild better? That's a great question, David. And the answer is not yet. So I think the initial thrust of the administration would be what I would describe as repair, the things we've just been talking about, to stabilize the home front to get the United States back on the playing field of international uh, organizations and, and diplomacy to revive alliances. And then you've got the heavy lifting. What will the United States do vis-a-vis -vis Russia and China to manage those great power rivals? What will we actually do on climate? Can we structure the, the digital space, which is clearly essentially the, the Wild West? What can we do so the world is better prepared for the next pandemic and is better able to deal with the existing one? So I think that's, you know, there's a little bit of time there. That's why you got to get everybody up to speed in their jobs, got to get the interagency system working. But I think the, the idea of innovation, of moving forward, we're not going to know that for a few months. 
But that'll be the, the ultimate test of, of, of this administration's foreign policy. That was Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations and author of the best-selling book, The World, A Brief History. Coming up, what the Biden administration means for the economy and for business. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. President Biden's pick for Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was one of the first of his cabinet nominees to have a confirmation hearing. In her three-hour testimony to the Senate Finance Committee, the former Fed chair pressed President Biden's $1.9 trillion fiscal stimulus package as essential to fight the economic harm being done by the coronavirus. Neither the president-elect nor I proposed this relief package without an appreciation for the country's debt burden. Economists don't always agree, but I think there is a consensus now. Without further action, we risk a longer, more painful recession now and longer-term scarring of the economy later. Members of the committee, these are very ambitious goals. And I know we will need to work together. Yellen's support for the president's stimulus plan met some resistance from Republican lawmakers who expressed concern that the level of spending on top of what has come already could hurt rather than help. Here's South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. But the $1.9 trillion package that has been presented to us is a package that focuses on some priorities that I think will actually hurt our economy as much as it would improve our economy. Yellen also showed some potential continuity with some Trump administration policies, particularly in her tough stance on China, which she called the United States' most important strategic competitor. We need to take on uh, China's abusive, unfair and illegal practices. China's undercutting American companies by dumping products, erecting trade barriers and giving illegal subsidies to corporations. But the Treasury Secretary nominee did not condone Trump administration suggestions that the country might benefit from a weaker dollar, saying that should be left strictly to the markets. I believe in market-determined exchange rates. The value of the U.S. dollar and other currencies should be determined by markets. 
It's been only a dozen years since Congress had to bail out the economy from the great financial crisis, and Sheila Baer was a key official in that rescue effort as head of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. She says there will come a time to be frugal, but it is not now. Well, I, I think she's right. You need to go big right now. The, the country, the economy is still in serious trouble. And once again, the people are getting hit the hardest are low, in, low income, low middle income families. And the lion's share of the, uh, the assistance, you've got supplemental em- unemployment, you've got direct household payments. Uh, I think that's money well targeted and needs to be spent. Families need help. They're still struggling. And uh, so I, I agree with her. Uh, so uh, targeting, we talk about targeting a lot. Republicans talk about it. Right. We never seem right. to quite get there. I mean, <laughs> as yeah. a practical matter, even the PPE right. and things yeah. like that, it appears that it's going to the top, not the bottom. What can we do better to make sure yeah. it does get to the people who need it? Well, I think the shift to fiscal away from monetary policy is hugely important. Notably, this $1.9 trillion does not include additional money to you know, backstop the Fed with its interventions. The Fed's just not equipped to get money to Main Street. They put money into financial markets. You know, Wall Street's been doing really, really well since the great financial crisis. Not so much for that lower 80%, really, the, the, the people who work for a living and rely on labor income, not investment income, to live. Uh, so just the shifting back to fiscal, that's a much better approach to get money actually in the hands of families. And, you know, direct payments is a very efficient way to get money out quickly, which is really what we need to do. You don't need a lot of bureaucracy. There's no... You know, there's all this debate about whether people earn it or not or deserve it. You know, I, I kind of I look at all the trades that have gone to Wall Street and I kind of have disdain for that. The lower 80 percent of the population, which is, well, you know, which is where these payments will reach. They've not done so well. Right. It took them 10 years to recover. They were finally just catching up and we have this hit. So I think there's some inequities of the past being addressed with these payments as well. But at least we know where the money's going. It's going to households. They can spend it on consumption, they can pay rent, they can pay their bills, they can save some of it, they can buttress their emergency savings. Again, I think that's money well spent. So one of the things that this pandemic has really exposed is some of the racial and economic injustice across the country. Uh, The the black communities and the Hispanic communities, and for that matter, the Native American communities have really been particularly hard hit. Is there anything that either the Fed or the Congress can do to really readjust that, to really target the assistance for the people that really need it? That is to say the minority communities. Yeah. So there's a lot of uh, structural bias in our system. Uh, we need to, you know, fundamentally rethink policy. So the way, for instance, banking, my, my uh, neck of the woods, the way we think about risk and risk weight, uh, you know, bank capital requirements, there's a lot of racial bias built into the assumptions that we use. So I think that's another area where I hope Janet Yellen will take a fresh look. I hope the Fed and, and other bank regulators will take a fresh look. How we think about credit, I think there's there's a lot of systemic bias. And there's one example of where policy generally can have, uh, you know, things that we're not even aware of, should be aware of, but have not been. So that, in addition to then just focusing on, on low-income families where, unfortunately, minorities are disproportionately represented, I fear we're going to have, a, you know, we're going to be worsening our structural unemployment problem. You know, labor force participation is down again job retraining, job growth, wage growth, job retraining. I'm, I'm for, you know, some kind of universal basic income, too, to provide some type of, you know, base support for working families. When we get through cycles like this, they've got something automatically to fall back on. There are a whole host of things. You know, let's face it, 
working families have been ignored by both parties for way too long. And so I'm hoping that, that Mr. Biden and Janet Yellen and others of his team are, are really going to be refocused on this. And I think they are. So one of the things that you focused on during the great financial crisis was really the safety and security of our financial system. Uh, right. As we go through this crisis and you look from the outside now, do you see places that you're concerned about the financial system? I do. I think the uh, the unbanked sector, excuse me, the the non-bank sector is a continuing source of turmoil. And last March we had market disruptions. Same suspects, right? Money market funds, highly leveraged hedge funds, levered uh, corporate ETFs. The Fed again had to come in and provide a lot of liquidity, a lot of bailouts. Uh, whether that was right or not, I don't know. I just I do know that when we resort to bailouts as opposed to using regulation to prevent these unstable structures to begin with, we just reinforce risky, bad behavior. So we need to fish or cut bait. Stop the bailouts, let them go down, let the market punish them, do away with them, or start providing some meaningful prudential supervision to present to prevent these unstable uh, structures from proliferating. Maybe some combination of both, but the unbanked sector, excuse me, I think it's the unbanked non-bank sector is definitely an area of continued financial fragility. And I think, again, Janet Yellen is chair of the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which has the, the authority, the cross-cutting regulatory authority to deal with this. This, I hope, will be a high priority for her as well. That was Sheila Baer, former FDIC chair. Coming up, President Biden wants to increase the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. But what would that do for the economy? And what's it got to do with the pandemic? We ask contributors Larry Summers of Harvard and Glenn Hubbard of Columbia. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. President Biden wants to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour, a measure he included in his day one priority of passing a stimulus bill to support the economy. People in both parties now recognize it's time to raise the minimum wage so hardworking people earn at least $15 an hour minimum. A move to $15 an hour would be more than double the current minimum wage of $7.25, which hasn't been changed since 2009. If passed, it would provide a pay hike to nearly 400,000 Americans who are earning minimum wage. Here's Evercore co-chairman and co-CEO Ralph Schlossstein. I mean, a $15 minimum wage uh, basically gets you to the poverty line uh, for a family of four. Until now, it's been the states leading the charge in raising minimum wages, with 29 states and the District of Columbia already taking action. Here's former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick. All of the evidence historically is that the economy grows after the minimum wage uh, has been raised. It is not the burden that it is that it has been sort of told. Critics say that raising the minimum wage could come at the cost of millions of jobs, like South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. The one thing that even the Congressional Budget Office recognizes is that by increasing the minimum wage to uh, $15 an hour, it could shutter somewhere around 3.7 million jobs on the high end, a minimum of 1.3 million jobs in our economy. One of those critics is Walmart CEO Doug McMillan. At a business roundtable event this week, the CEO agreed that $7.25 an hour is too low, but called for a higher wage that takes into account geographic differences and small businesses. Ralph Schlossstein again. 
Well, I think the, uh, the CEO of Walmart is uh, making a sensible statement that one size fits all uh, isn't uh, perfect. Some CEOs, like some states, are not waiting for the federal government to raise wages for workers. No matter what happens on the government level and federal level or the state level, we have companies. And I see the signs and, and I see companies are coming forward. Um, we have to do what's right, which is uh, bring the minimum wage at least $15 to start with. That was Chobani CEO Hamdi Ulukaya. Regional differences in the cost of living and the timing of a potential hike in the minimum wage raises concerns with some economists. Here's Doug Holtz-Eakin, the president of American Action Forum. I don't think it belongs in here. Uh, it's, it's not stimulus. It's not relief. It gets in the way of uh, recovery in the labor market. Uh, and so I expect that to drop out. Our roundtable reaction to a rise in the minimum wage. We welcome now Wall Street Week contributors Larry Summers, who served as Treasury Secretary under President Clinton and then as Director of the National Economic Council under President Obama, and Glenn Hubbard, who chaired the Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush. Welcome to both of you. Larry, let's start with you. What would be the effects on the economy overall of a rise to $15 an hour for the minimum wage? I read from the CBO, from the Congressional Budget Office, that on the one hand, you'd lose 1.3 million jobs. On the other hand, you'd take a lot of people out of poverty. I think you would take a lot of people out of poverty. I think on balance, it's probably positive. I worry less about job destruction then I worry that employers will stop paying benefits when they have to pay higher wages. I worry that employers will shift away from the most vulnerable and inexperienced workers towards uh, workers with more experience and more education. And so I think I'd probably prefer to see a more gradual approach and a more differentiated approach to a major minimum wage increase but if we're going to have a major, if we're going to have a minimum, the question is whether to do this or to do nothing. I would, on balance, favor doing this. So, Glenn, is there a third alternative to address perhaps some of what Larry is concerned about? I've heard it suggested that the problem with the minimum wage is it essentially acts as a tax on the employer. A better way would be to get money into the hands of people who need it through increasing the earned income tax credit, because that's a tax on all of us. It's shared equally. It doesn't penalize you for employing people. Well, I think that's right. I, I think President Biden got it right when he said people who work 40 hours a week should not be poor. That's a moral statement. It's an economic statement. But it's not a comment on the minimum wage per se. I would think that the EITC increase, particularly for childless workers who have not received much work support from EITC, and President Biden has talked about that, and also big government support for training for community colleges, these are the kinds of things that could help raise the wages of low-wage workers. So a gradual increase in the minimum wage may on balance be fine if it's gradual and not, uh, and not all the way so fast. But I think a, a building bridges to the future for workers is a much better idea. That's Glenn Hubbard of Columbia and Larry Summers of Harvard. Coming up, our conversation on the new Biden administration continues. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood. 
a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. European Central Bank met this week, and although it didn't surprise anyone in what it did, President Christine Lagarde did warn of the possibility of a double-dip recession in Europe as a result of further shutdowns triggered by the pandemic. And reinforcing Madame Lagarde's warning were PMI numbers showing further contracting in Eurozone and UK business activity in the month of January. We turn once again to our roundtable for a reaction to what we're seeing in continued European economic softness. So, Glenn, I'll start with you. Is there anything that Madame Lagarde, or for that matter, fiscally, they can do over there? Is this all a matter of vaccinating people? Well, it's first and foremost a public health crisis, and vaccination is important. And all of the prophylactics to fight uh, the spread of the disease. But there are fiscal policy actions that need to be taken to sustain workers, to sustain firms during this period so that you don't have a K-shaped recovery as the vaccine uh, finally comes aboard. So I think for Europe, fiscal policy is going to be more important than just asking President Lagarde to do her job. So, so, Larry, talking about a K-shaped recovery, I wonder if there's a different kind of K-shaped recovery. If you take a look at China, China seems to be rebounding quite nicely, if we can say that, about the pandemic. Uh, Europe is really struggling. Maybe the U.S. is somewhere in between. Are we seeing a really divergence among the nations right now in recovering their economies from the pandemic? I think we are, David. And I think ultimately what historians may notice out of this moment is how much better Asia did than the West did. And the order of magnitude, and I mean that literally by more than a factor of 10, in some cases by more than a factor of 100, differences in performance between Asia, large parts of Asia, and large parts of the West, that's something that goes beyond Donald Trump versus somebody else as the head of a state. And I think that's something that's going to get a lot of attention going forward. And I think that it's why, in addition to the human issues, um, what President Biden's able to do in the next three months is going to be so profoundly important. If there was ever a test of whether government by the people was effectively government for the people, It's in the ability to protect people from a pandemic. And right now, the democracies of the United States and Europe are not looking particularly good relative to more authoritarian uh, states. And I think that's a very profound question uh, going forward. Glenn, do you agree with that? And if so, do you have a hypothesis about why there is that divergence? 
Well, I think it differs across countries, but I think Larry's right. Uh, we do need to make sure that democracy is capable of, of uh, coping with these major, major mobilization-type challenges we have before, and we can do it again. I would also worry about emerging economies. We've been talking about industrial economies, uh, Europe, China, the United States. But the emerging economies have huge problems, both in public health and in economics, and require our attention, too. Okay, we wrap up every week with a quick summer says around here with Larry Summers about what he thinks about various things. Let's start with 100 vaccinations in 100 days, which is what President Biden is committed to. Is that going to happen or not, Larry? He's going to overperform significantly on that promise. It's We're almost at a million a day, and there's every reason to believe we can ramp up in the future. We will do substantially better than 100 million vaccines in 100 days. Let's talk about the U.S. Treasuries. Uh, we heard from Janet Yellen again uh, at our confirmation hearing. They're considering at least the duration. Are we going to have a 50-year U.S. Treasury bond before the Biden administration is over? That's a long time. We're not going to have it anytime soon because Janet's going to learn what all her predecessors who thought about this learned, that doing that would be a major gift to all the fixed income trading desks <laughs> and all the hedge funds at the expense of taxpayers, given the way it's likely to be priced, it would turn out to be a major setup for arbitrage opportunity. So it won't happen anytime soon. And finally, Larry, we had a remarkable development right at the very end of the week with a company named GameStop uh, that they actually had to stop trading twice during the day. It shot way up. I mean, way, way up. And apparently it was because there was sort of an army of Reddit users who all marshaled together to go against a short seller. And basically, I couldn't see any change in the underlying company at all. Uh, Is social media going to really do damage not only to our political system, but to our market system? I suspect our market system will survive. social media, but God, this points up the need for, as we used to say in the Treasury in the 90s, a regulatory system as modern as the markets. And there's always uh, a need to regulate bucket shops and to regulate various ways in which retail investors are taken advantage of. And we're in a situation where there are, where it's an old theme and an old story but there are new ways of doing it. So I'm glad that we're having an administration and a set of financial uh, regulators. I was glad about the appointment of people like Michael Barr at the controller of the currency, um, that will Gary Gensler at uh, the SEC, that uh, will be committed to regulating where regulation is necessary. But Larry, briefly here at the end, I must say I'm surprised. I thought if there was going to be a regulatory body with respect to social media, it would be the FTC. It could be maybe Department of Justice and Antitrust. Uh, maybe it'll be the SEC, actually, that has to regulate social media. Look, I think there are a whole set of issues that are outside my expertise on, you know, inflammatory tr- tweets, on monopoly power in social media platforms, in privacy uh, issues that are the FTC's uh, remit. But when I look at things like what happened at Reddit, that's a kind of dysfunctional market. And I think that's something the SEC is going to have to uh, pay a lot of attention to, just as there were a whole set of practices that produced balloon bubble stocks prior to 1929. Thank you so much to Wall Street Week contributors Larry Summers of Harvard and also Glenn Hubbard of Columbia. It's time now for a look ahead on Global Wall Street.
David. Next week brings us a virtual Davos, and we will hear from more government and corporate leaders on the global outlook with Joe Biden in the White House. And here in Asia, we have a busy week of earnings ahead. From Japan, more than 400 companies listed on the topics report, including prominent tech players Fanuc and Tokyo Electron, along with Tokyo Disney operator Oriental Land. South Korea's lineup includes Hyundai Motors and Tesla battery supplier LG Chemical. And we'll also get results from India's largest lender, the State Bank of India, which will give us clues into the recovery ahead of the Indian Parliament kicking off its budget session on Friday. Danny? Thanks, Sophie. In Europe, there are increasing fears about a double-dip recession. We got data on Friday that showed the economy in the euro area is slipping further into a contraction. You have more lockdowns hurting the services sector, and at the same time, Brexit increasing delivery delays hurting the manufacturing sector. How the government responds to this over the next week is going to be crucial, and their plans on how much longer economies will continue to be locked down. Scarlett? Thanks, Danny. Week two of Joe Biden's presidency may bring more executive orders and updates on his $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan. The pandemic has generally been a big positive for tech, and their latest earnings report will likely show the spoils. Industry giants Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft all expected to indicate that the trend will continue well into 2021. The Federal Reserve holds a two-day meeting. Chairman Jay Powell expected to stress the need to wait and see on how fiscal support and the vaccine rollout shape up before making any changes to its outlook. And we get an initial read on fourth quarter economic growth with GDP probably slowing to a 4.3% rate. David, back over to you. Thanks to Sophie, Danny, and Scarlett. Finally, one more thought. It's not easy being president. You have the weight of the free world on your shoulders. You have a pesky Congress that gives you a tough time over just about anything you want to do. And you need to protect the country from possible attack at any time of day or of night. But the job is not without its perks. You get a big house, you get a 747 as your personal airplane, and a limo so big that they call it the beast. And of course, you do have four million employees committed to giving you anything you want, right? Well, not so fast. It turns out that all those people charged with keeping you safe have their own ideas about what you can and cannot do. So when President Barack Obama took office, he fought for two months to keep his BlackBerry. Sure, he ultimately got his way, but only after a two-month battle. And when he got his precious BlackBerry back, he could only reach a small circle of people. And even those couldn't forward any of his messages. And now it's President Biden's turn. His simple pleasure is getting on his Peloton and working out every morning to get the day started right. But there is a problem. The Peloton connects to the internet, letting you get inspiration from your favorite trainer and compete with others on the leaderboard. Well, the Secret Service is none too happy with the idea of foreign adversaries getting access into the new president's innermost sanctum, not to mention his exercise routine. I'm sure President Biden will get some version of his beloved Peloton back at some point, but we should all take heart that even though we can't protect untold government computer systems from Russian hackers, we can make sure they can't get at one lonely Peloton now located at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. One in three adults has prediabetes. That means it could be you, your best man, your worst man. 
Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org to know where you stand. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.